My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is a professor and scholar-in-residence at Houston Christian University and the author of the new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. Please welcome Professor Nancy Piercy. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. As regular listeners of my podcast will know, the Renaissance of Men is a 40-year process to rebirth and redeem masculinity. I didn't start the Renaissance, I merely observed it and gave it a name. But the Renaissance didn't come out of nowhere. In fact, it was created by specific historical conditions. Beginning in the Industrial Revolution, then moving through war, social upheaval, political revolution, and now even spiritual oppression, men have been progressively weakened in both body and soul, enabling the takedown of women and the family with them. The Renaissance, or rebirth, of men, I believe, is God's multi-generational response to that gathering darkness. I wouldn't have always described it that way. In fact, when I started the Renaissance of Men three years ago, I didn't quite know where it came from. I only knew with my whole heart that it existed. But now I can see so clearly that out of the ashes of our broken society, God is raising up sons and daughters to be reconciled in Christ, and so the seeds of a new world in our minds, hearts, bodies, souls, families, households, and nation. I know that sounds like an idealistic vision, but here I stand. I can do no other. This is what I believe. This is what I work towards. This is what I know is happening as part of our shared post-millennial vision. A great reconciliation. The greatest ever. Greater than we can even imagine. Civilizational rebirth as the sons and daughters of God rediscover each other, and God willing, we should see it in our lifetimes. But that's what's ahead of us. What's behind us? How can we see clearly the root causes of the Renaissance? What mistakes were made within the depths of history that made such a multi-generational effort necessary? In my video, What is the Renaissance? linked in the show notes, I sought to answer that question as best I could. The story seemed to fit the facts, but I'm not a professional historian, nor am I a researcher. I came up with my version of the war on masculinity to understand how we got here, but then I discovered there was another. Which brings me to my guest this week. Her name is Professor Nancy Piercy, and she's the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. But that's not all she's done. Her earlier books include Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, How Shall We Live, co-authored with Harold Fickett and Chuck Colson, and Total Truth. Her books have been translated into 19 languages. She is a professor and scholar-in-residence at Houston Christian University. A former agnostic, Piercy has spoken at universities such as Princeton, Stanford, USC, and Dartmouth. She has been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek, highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today, and hailed in The Economist 
as, quote, America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. In other words, the big guns have arrived. And praise God for that. Because until five minutes ago, if you had tried to tell people that there was a war on masculinity, they would have laughed and patriarchy at you. But by now, there have been enough books written about the social, sexual, emotional, and spiritual challenges men face today so that we can collectively acknowledge that there's a problem. If Andrew Tate did nothing else, he highlighted that clearly for the world. So people have been forced to ask, how did we get here? What happened to our men? And not just everyday people like me, but globally published, award-winning, mainstream media-quoted professors like Nancy Piercy. And what she discovered finally surprised me. She identified the same root of the problem that I and others have, the Industrial Revolution. But with stunning clarity and insight, she carefully disassembled complex sociological trends that marked an inversion of the moral and social order from men to women that I knew about but didn't understand. I get it now. And that's not even the best reason to read her book. That comes early on, when she explains the differences in marital satisfaction across all dimensions between secular couples, nominal, quote, Christian couples, and practicing faithful evangelical couples. Her conclusions will shock you, and then they will inspire you and hopefully show you why, as the subtitle of Professor Piercy's book reads, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Reconciliation. I like the sound of that. In fact, it sounds pretty great. So are you up to sow the seeds of a new world? If so, pick up Professor Piercy's book and see how you can help. In our conversation, Professor Piercy and I discussed what inspired her book, the definition of a good man, Darwin and masculinity, spiritual headship and marital satisfaction, evangelical wolves in sheep's clothing, Christ's radical treatment of women and children, and finally, what side she's really on. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. My three-year anniversary is next week, and it's not lost on me the significance that three years into this adventure, I'm able to host a show with such accomplished men and women working towards the same goal. God is truly great, and I better stop there because I might start singing Amazing Grace. If you want to help this podcast grow, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating on Spotify, a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this episode or another one of your favorites with a friend. I have some amazing guests lined up in the coming weeks, including a guest I've been working on for almost a year. And with the momentum this show is building, God willing, some big things are up ahead. Thank you all for being a part of it, and I can't wait to celebrate with you next week. For those of you on the East Coast of America, I have exciting news. Coming up next weekend, October 6th through 8th, I'm speaking at the Man Up Conference at Electric City Baptist Church in Schenectady, New York. It's a three-day conference featuring talks, worship, and opportunities to connect with other like-minded men as we discuss biblical masculinity. On Saturday night, I'll be giving an exclusive talk on honor that I'm putting together specifically for this conference. Also speaking during the weekend will be Dr. Joe Bova of Bova Health and Wellness, Pastor Benny Stiltner, a church planter, plus Electric City's pastor Anthony Stafford and their worship leader Nate Roberts will kick the event off Friday evening with worship and prayer. And the best part is, this event is totally free. So once again, if you're in or near upstate New York on the weekend of October 6th through 8th, come to Electric City Baptist Church in Schenectady for the free Man Up Conference. The Eventbrite link with more information and free registration is in the show notes, and I hope to see you there. The Renaissance of Men is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee, purveyors of fine, delicious, hand-roasted beans by Pastor Brandon Lansdowne and his family in Springfield, Missouri. Reformation Coffee is part of my morning routine with Canon Plus and Bible reading. 
with every bag, together we can support a godly man in his dream, plus build into Christendom, starve the woke beast, and take dominion of a big part of our lives, our coffee. Since you drink coffee probably every day, it makes more sense to subscribe to get your coffee delivered to you without thinking about it. One less thing to worry about, you know? So right now, cross that to-do item off your list by visiting reformationcoffee.com and signing up for a new subscription, monthly, weekly, or even bi-weekly. When you do, use the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag on the house. Choose from Brazil, Ethiopia, Guatemala, or India roasts. They also have a version without caffeine if you decide that you need to endure some voluntary hardship. And again, all those can be found by going to reformationcoffee.com, where if you sign up for a new subscription with the code SUBFREE, you can get a free 12-ounce bag on the house. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, an accomplished woman I admire who used her capable mind and generous heart to investigate and try to heal the divide between the sexes, hopefully providing an example to all. The author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, Professor Nancy Piercy. Nancy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So when I heard about your book, which would have been, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, I don't remember, I was actually in the middle of working on my own documentary about the war on masculinity. So when I saw that your book was coming out, I was really excited to read it. And I was very happy that uh, that you had picked up whole different themes than I had even, um, that I had even realized. So I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Yes. Yeah, so, well, you sent me... Um a demo of your of your work and and I saw a lot of overlap there so this is really interesting that so many of our interests in men and how to help men and how to fight the you know the hostility against masculinity we, we've seen a lot of the same things so yeah this should be fun a, a fun conversation absolutely and I really appreciated that you were willing to talk about how we got here as men and women because there's a lot of commentary about men and women need to improve but like what what's the historical trends that actually brought us to this point yeah so um you can't really stand against a social trend unless you know where it came from mm-hmm. you know how it developed and so a lot of people think that the language of toxic masculinity came out of the 1960s, second wave feminism, but you really have to go much further back. You have to go back to the Industrial Revolution, because before that, men worked alongside their wives and children all day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectation on men focused much more on their caretaking role, on their responsibility for the family. And even non-Christian historians put it this way, the language at the time was duty to God and man. <laughs> that was the expectation on men. And, and so, and, and in fact, one of the most common phrases back then was house fathers. Today yeah. we talk about housewives, but they actually talked about house fathers. Yeah. And no father thought that was a put down <laughs> because fathers were just as involved with children as their wives were. And in fact, another surprising uh, fact that I found in my, re- my research was the books written to, on parenting, sermons, uh, advice manuals, and so on, were addressed mostly to fathers, not to mothers. If you go yeah. into a bookstore today, they're all to mothers. But fathers were seen as the primary parent, and so the books and sermons were all written to fathers. And so the question then is, how did we lose that? How did we lo- lose that concept of? you know, the father as caretaker. The Industrial Revolution takes work out of the home. And of course, men have to follow their work out of the home. And for the first time in American history, men were no no longer working alongside their family, right? People that they loved and had a moral bond with. 
And instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And this is when you start to see the literature change. People at the time actually began to protest that men were losing the caretaking, family-oriented ethos of the, of the colonial era. And they were becoming self-interested, individualistic, egocentric, you know, greedy and acquisitive, look out for number one, and making their job their idol. This is all language that I'm taking from the literature at that time. Yeah. And so that was the first time that negative language began to be applied to the male character. So if we want to understand how to fix it, we've got to go all the way back to there and say, you know, how did men sort of get estranged from their families through the Industrial Revolution? And of course, especially their sons, because that's what we're mostly concerned about is, you know, the concept of masculinity then got lost because boys were no longer being raised day in and day out by their fathers. So that kind of sets the stage of what we need to do to fix it. Now, was it trying to understand where the term toxic masculinity came from that inspired the book? Like, what was originally that generated you diving into this subject that I think few women would tackle? Yeah, it was partly that. I was getting, um, I was shocked, to be honest, at how socially acceptable it has become to attack masculinity. So the Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? Yeah. And I thought, really? You know, in a mainstream publication, a Huffing- Huffington Post editor tweeted, hashtag, kill all men. Yeah. There are t-shirts that you can buy that say, so many men, so little ammunition. <laughs> and there's some books that are really blunt in their titles, like, I hate men, and no good men, and are men necessary? Yeah. And then the real shock is that men starts... Jumping on the bandwagon, a fairly well-known uh, male author wrote a book and, in which he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. Whoa. And then the, there's another example. It's not in the book because it came out more recently, but you probably saw it. It was in the news. The director of the movie Avatar yep. was in the news because he said, um, uh, James Cameron said, testosterone is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. So no wonder one survey found that almost half of American men say that these days society seems to punish men just for acting like men. And whether you agree with that or not, that's a lot of men who feel disaffected. And by the way, there's an even more recent one, not in the book because it's more recent, but it was in Britain. 55% of men said that. So if anything is going up, a lot of men are feeling, you know, demoralized and and defeated and put down. I told my class at Houston Christian, Christian University where I teach I was, that I was writing a book on masculinity. And one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Whoa. So yes, that is the, the reason I wrote the book is I thought we need to get to, get to the bottom of this. We need to find out, you know, I'm an apologist at heart. All my books are on apologetics. And so I wanted to figure out why does the secular world get masculinity so wrong, you know, and how can we counter it? That's so as you go diving into this, I think you mentioned in the close of the book that you had, there was a suggestion that you had experienced some friction or some pushback from people. Once you started announcing that you were researching this, did that, did that surprise you? Because you're looking around these social trends and you're seeing why can, why can't we hate men? It's been beaten out of us. So like maybe you, I'm doing a good thing. And then you discover maybe not. Well, the reason I was surprised is because I really thought my previous book would be more controversial. It's called Love Thy Body, and yeah. it's on abortion, 
homosexuality, transgenderism, which is really exploding now. And so in that sense, I was surprised that uh, perhaps, especially in Christian circles, masculinity was actually more controversial. <laughs> so I, I was leading classes on the manuscript. I was leading reading groups because I like to get a lot of feedback and, you know, rub off the rough edges. Sure. And they would tell their family and friends about it. So these were people who were not actually reading the book, just hearing about it. And the <sighs> first question invariably was, whose side is she on? <laughs> you know, with that tone, <laughs> whose side is she on? And by the way, the second question was always, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway? Sure. So, so men tended to assume because I was a woman that I was some kind of a male bashing feminist. Progressives tended to assume I was a reactionary, angry, defensive, uh, conservative, and so, and so I had to rewrite the opening chapter multiple times to see if I could get over that initial suspicion. Because once people got into the content, they usually liked it. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of social. It's most my most fact driven book got a lot of data. So they, they like the sociological data, they like the historical data, but I had to get them past the first chapter to, to get into the, uh, to actually get into the content. And I have to tell you, Will, it's continued to be controversial um, after publication, the day after it was published. It was jumped on by Christian egalitarians. Oh, sure. And so the book was sort of dragged into the egalitarian complementarian debate, which I don't even deal with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and in fact, I, I explain why I don't deal with it, because two of my top researchers say it doesn't seem to matter. Surprise, surprise. Um, if men act like Christians, their gender theory doesn't seem to make much difference. So the two top uh, uh, experts that I'm talking about, um, one of them is a sociologist. His name is. Uh, Brad Wilcox, and he's at the University of Virginia. He's considered one of the top marriage researchers in the country. And he said, in my research, I am not finding that a husband's gender theory makes much difference in how happy his marriage is, how, how successful his marriage is. In fact, he even did a study, at least one study that I found, on, on egalitarian marriages. <laughs> and, and he said, they weren't any happier. I'm, you know, sorry, they just, you might expect they would be. I mean, most of us would, right? Sure. Um, and he said they did not test out as any happier. The other, so I said there were two experts. He's one. The other was a psychologist, not a Christian. Uh, John Gottman. He 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 became famous because he was a mathematician before he became a psychologist, and so he does very quantifiable studies. He brings couples in to like a bed and breakfast, which is really a lab, <laughs> and wires them up to test their heart rate and the breathing rate and the their hormones, the stress hormones and the sweat rate. And of course, uh, complicated codes for everything they say from placating to put downs. And he feeds all this into a computer and he's become famous because he can predict with 93.6 accuracy <laughs> whether a couple will divorce after a very short observation period. So that's who we're talking about. And he also said, I have couples who come into my practice, and some of them believe the man should be, you know, the husband should be in charge of the marriage. And I have couples who come in who are very egalitarian. And he said, you know, I'm not seeing a difference. And, and here's how he concludes. He says, emotionally intelligent husbands, that's his phrase, emotionally intelligent husbands have figured out the important thing, which is to convey honor and respect to your wife. Amazing. So I give that. In chapter one, I say, I'm not engaging this debate. <laughs> and then I'm being dragged into it 
um, primarily by Christian egalitarians who are who are angry. They, they say you're giving ammunition. That's their word. You're giving ammunition to complementarians, and that's wicked, <laughs> evil, bad, and dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Which side are you on? The debate plays out again, right? <laughs> and by the way, uh, by the way, they took over my Twitter feed for you know three or four weeks, and then when that died down, I got attacked by by conservatives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to hear what their what their concern was? I think I saw some of them, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so uh, uh, Peter Lightheart is a fairly well known. A theologian wrote a positive review of the book for First Things, which is a respected journal. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, he said that, that I was right to point out that the Hebrew word for help in Genesis, you know, when it says that God created the woman to be a help, that the help, that, that word in Hebrew does not mean a subordinate. Like, you know, we say help, we think an assistant, a subordinate, inferior. And mm. it did not mean that in the Hebrew. Yes. Because that word is used most often of God, right? our ever present help in trouble. And, and often in, in terms of military assistance, of course, for in, in the Old Testament. And so Peter Lighthart says Nancy is right. This, this does not mean like a di- little domestic helper, it means like, you know, an, a, a battle ally. <laughs> Whew. That got the conservatives <laughs> because they said you'd. You're denigrating women's domestic role. First hmm. of all, I didn't say, I was not the one who said domestic, Peter Lightheart was. <laughs> but oh. no, I, I kept saying, I'm just giving you an accurate translation of a Hebrew word. I mean, it is a, it's either accurate or it's not. Um, and, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm the last person to, um, to denigrate women's domestic role because I work from home most of the time. I had... I had I homeschooled my kids. I had home births. Mm. I'm really big into sort of reviving the home, the homestead. You know, I, I think we should we should try to counter the industrial revolution by bringing these sort of traditional family functions back to the home, strengthening the home. I've written about this many places, <laughs> but anyway, so that that gives you sort of the lay of the land uh, where things stand at, at this moment. I mean, that all makes a lot of sense because the discussion about masculinity and femininity and, and we'll say traditional Christian values, patriarchy, whatever labels we use, it's so hypercharged right now. And it's very, very sensitive. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Oh, well, um, just today, I haven't even had a chance to read it, but um, the, 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 the folks who are attacking, the Christian egalitarians who are attacking me, but uh, it's spearheaded by a woman who's who she's a public figure, so I can say her name, Sheila Gregoire. Mm. So she has now uh, come out with a negative review of the book. Came out just yesterday, I think, and now she's and a, and a negative. What I understand is a negative podcast. I haven't heard, I haven't listened to it yet. I just saw it today, but I already had some people saying, "Oh, she's not fair to your book. She's not representing it." So we'll see. Mm. Uh, in other words, it's ongoing, ongoing controversy. Yeah. I mean, I, I read the whole book and I felt it was, I think it was very fair. I think it was, it was very loving and very honest naturally. Like there were aspects, like I'm not going to agree with hundred percent of the book that I read, but that's not the point. Like the idea is like, are you thoughtfully, carefully, sincerely and genuinely approaching such a charged, complicated topic dealing with 200 years of history that we're not even really allowed to talk about, right? That's kind of papered 
that's kind of papered over. And I thought that you did that remarkably well. And there were, I mean, I highlighted the whole book. I can show you, you know, because there was so much that I book, I, I dog-eared the pages to make sure I could go back to it. I thought it was a, a remarkable, especially because this is an area that I, I know something about, not as much as, as you, I haven't yes. done as much research, but I was like, wow, I didn't even know some of the stuff. So I thought it was a remarkably fair treatment and surprising in many ways, but naturally people are going to react to that. Yeah. And I think one reason people react to it is because, um, you know, there are whole libraries of books on women's history because of the feminist movement. Yes. I found two, <laughs> two good books written by men on history, history of concepts of masculinity, not, not histories of men, because, you know, that's kings and emperors and so on, and all histories cover that. But histories of concepts of masculinity. Yeah. There were only two. And then there were some let, smaller uh, studies like history of fatherhood and so on. Um, but what that means is I'm giving a male perspective on history, and most people are not familiar with that. Right. Most people are familiar with the feminist approach to history. And so I think that that is another reason that some people are saying, whoa, this is so different from anything I've heard before. You know, where'd you get this? So, uh, and I'm glad. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be representing a more male perspective. If you read my, if you read, and I'm sure you have, if you read my sources, you know, mm -hmm. most of them are um, male sources. Women, women did some of the history as well. You know, they did some good work and I quote them too, but. I, I was very happy to be able to highlight men who were doing this, you know, really good work on the history of men. Did you find that your own perspective on things was, sh was shifting as you were writing the book and doing the research? Like, oh, wow, like you really learned something that shifted your own perspective about anything, really? Yeah, mm -hmm. I became more conservative. <laughs> <laughs> Praise God for that. <laughs> well, I give, you know, I start the book with the story of my own history. Yeah. Um, because I grew up in a very abusive home. My father was severely physically abusive. And in, in books on abuse, they often ask, was it open hand or closed fist? Mm. And it was closed fist. Yikes. You know, my, my father would make the knuckle fist, mm. give a sharper stab of pain. So he, he was punching and kicking. And, uh, and so naturally, I went total feminist mm -hmm. in my young adult years, you know, complete. I mean, I read all the feminist books I could get my hands on, all the, all the major foundational texts, you know, from Betty Friedan and so on. Um, and so, so I started this book um, sort of, I would say, sort of in the middle between liberal and conservative on these issues. And then I wrote the book, then I wrote the chapters on um, abuse, mm -hmm. you know, because there are, I, um, I had to acknowledge that there is abuse in the Christian world, and you can't just slide that under the carpet. So I had to deal with it. So I, the book ends actually with two chapters on abuse. Mm -hmm. And here's how, how it changed my mind. Um, we have to acknowledge the differences be between men and women, or we will not put moral guardrails on men's superior strength. Men are physically bigger, stronger, faster. They, they have more fast twitch muscles. I had to learn that word. Mm. It means that they can react more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, because of testosterone, they are more aggressive and more risk-taking. And all of that is a very good thing unless there's abuse. And then suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, um, men have, you know, when these strengths are used in a bad way to harm other people, um, well, let me put it this way, 50%, half of all female homicides are intimate partners. 
that means intimate partners is the overarching phrase meaning husband, former husband, boyfriend, or former boyfriend. 50% of all female homicides are intimate partners. The corresponding number for men is 3%. Hmm. So what that means is because of men's larger size, society has got to acknowledge those differences. Otherwise, it will not put moral you know, guardrails up on men's superior strength. It's not that men are more evil, but men can do more damage <laughs> just because they're physically stronger. And so I, I did come to feel more strongly about the need to acknowledge the differences and the need to give men good purposes to focus that extra energy, that extra aggression, that extra strength that they have. You know, we need to give men a sense of purpose and, you know, give, giving them unique roles in society. You know, I mean, feminism kind of is about, let's get rid of all role distinctions, you know. Right. Um, no, I think we have to have role distinctions for women's sake. To protect women. So, <laughs> you know, so it's in a, in a sense, you know, you usually hear this argument from men. No, I want protection. I want protection from men's superior strength. And I want them to be motivated to use their strength for good. I remember uh, actually before we started the podcast, I was actually flipping through the book and just reviewing some of the previous chapters. And I was just, I just happened to be reading the section where you, you wrote about the Puritans and the Puritan stance on, on domestic abuse and just how strong a stance they took on that. They passed the first law ever in the world that yeah. we know of, the first law ever in the world against domestic violence, or as they put it, wife beating. Yeah. Uh, six, uh, 1641, I think, um, Massachusetts Bay Colony passed the first law ever against wife beating. It was soon amended to include husband beating <laughs> and, and uh, abuse of children and servants. But I thought that was astonishing. You know, we have such a negative view of the Puritans. Even teaching at a Christian college, if I say the word Puritan, yeah. my students all say, what? They say, I never heard anything positive about the Puritans until I read your book. Yeah. So I am happy to be able to say, look, you know, this is part of our heritage. It's our Christian heritage and it's our American heritage, right? Because the earlier the early years, the colonial per period, you know, was largely dominated by the Puritans. And so this is a big part of our heritage. And recovering the positive part of that heritage, I think, is a very good thing for us as, you know, we're able to look back at our, at our own history and say, look, we've got some good models. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have mm -hmm. some good models from history. I really appreciate you explaining, um, explaining the, the last couple chapters because that was that was a section of the book I was trying I was trying to reconcile because it's because coming from a perspective of a man who speaks about masculinity and, and mentors men and, and is is public about it the the response is always around uh, men's domestic violence as a reason why masculinity needs to be reduced and or eliminated and and so and so from my perspective reading it I, I was I wanted to understand the purpose of those chapters and it really helps me to know the and to understand both the intentions behind them and also the way that your perspective changed through the course of writing the book the way that you were transformed by your own work yeah um this is a little off topic but there's a secular feminist who who has a similar story her name is louise perry and she mm -hmm. wrote a book called the case against the sexual revolution and she was very liberal very you know she writes for a left-leaning uh, publication and so on and went to a very, very liberal university. I've listened to her podcast. And what changed her was working at a domestic violence shelter. 
a rape shelter. Excuse me, I got that wrong. It's, I think it was primarily a rape shelter. Mm. Um, but the same point, right? When she became aware of the physical differences between men and women and how, how much impact that can have, oh. that, that was the starting point of her change. She said, okay, as a society, we have got to acknowledge the differences between men and women. Got Otherwise, it. we won't protect women. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, there it is. That was kind of the same trajectory of my own thinking. Um, and I, I was on a podcast not long ago with a Christian um, who said, well, what are the differences between men and women, you know, apart from the, apart from the mere physical differences? And I said, mere physical differences, <laughs> those are huge. Yeah. Ask any woman who's been raped, ask any woman who's been physically abused, those physical differences are huge, and it's time to start paying more attention to them. Uh, and again, like I say, for women's sake, um, and I think it's, it's better for men too, but uh, I think that maybe um, people have overlooked how important it is for women. That's a that's a fascinating conclusion to draw from that. I, it, it clicked in when you were saying that, that, that the reason why we have these roles is for women's protection in the first place versus allowing them to be exposed with this false egalitarian ideal where they're kind of fending for themselves. That's a, that's a, I, okay, I get it now. I, I see what you mean. And, and I agree, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And, and it helps explain um, like the first Peter uh, verse, you know, I, I, in, in my book, I, I zero in on a couple of passages that are often misunderstood. And first Peter one is one of those when it says, you know, the weaker vessel mm. and people say, Oh, the Bible denigrates women. It paints them as weak. No, in, weak in that context meant without power. It didn't mean intellectually weaker, you know, weaker in character. It meant without power. And it's about time we started acknowledging again that, yes, women do have less power. Certainly back then they had less social, economic, um, political power, all kinds of power. But even today, women, um, physical power, which we've just talked about, but also economic power. Most women do cut back on their involvement in the paid workforce when they have children. So they are economically dependent on someone to provide for them. It's very difficult for one person to raise children well mm-hmm. and support the family at the same time. That's why God gave us two parents. Right. Um, but it does mean that women are also vulnerable, though, you know, because they're not the ones working. You know, if a man walks out, what happens to her? You know, she, she's economically vulnerable during that time. So that's a form of weakness in that sense of, you know, having less power. So I think it's time for us to recognize that the scripture is just being very clear-eyed about the fact that women have less power and are more vulnerable for physical reasons um, and biological reasons. They're the ones who have children. Um, And, you know, they're even the ones who sort of take on the threat in the environment to their children. You know, a good mom is very sensitive to the threats in the environment to her children. She has to kind of be aware of them. They're not happening to her, but she's got to be aware of what could hurt her child. She, she has to be a mama bear. Mm-hmm. So the, it's not just pregnancy. It's also, you know, when, you, when you're caring for young children, there's a whole period there where um, you're e- more economically vulnerable. And, you know, men, men have to be trained to step up to the plate and, and let me tell you some of the good news, though, um, because you know, this is the most fact-based book I've written, so I have a lot of studies. And um, I'll give you just one on this topic. There was a, the first ever cross-cultural study of uh, concepts of masculinity. 
And it was done by an anthropologist, not a Christian. It's called Manhood of the Making. Yes, David mm. Gilmore. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And what I found interesting about it um, is that he's, you know, this cultural differences and definitions of masculinity, but what he found that was universal is that all cultures hold the expectation that the good man will accomplish what he calls the three Ps, provide, protect, and procreate. That is, you know, build a family, yep. you, uh, raise, raise children, become a father. And I thought, well, there you go. These are not necessarily Western countries that have a Christian background. This seems to be innate, inherent, universal. I, I would say, because men are made in God's image, mm-hmm. they do know that their unique masculine strength was not given them just to get what they want, but to protect and provide for and take care of the people that they love. So I thought that was really encouraging to see that this is, this seems to be an inherent knowledge. Men do seem to know what the good man is. Um, and, and so our job, therefore, is not to accuse them of being toxic. Mm-hmm. Most men don't respond very well to being called toxic. Right. But it does mean we can tie into, you know, tap into their innate knowledge of what it means to be a good man, support and encourage that. That's why I was. That's why I was so excited to read your book, um, and because the subtitle is uh, "How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes." And of course, I talk a lot about the Great Reconciliation, and a right. lot of and a lot of that, you know, comes comes back to understanding our design, and so that you were able to integrate that anthro- anthropological perspective into a Christian perspective. That was hugely powerful. And, and I, I'll tell you my other favorite it's a survey. It was done by a sociologist. And again, not a Christian. Sure. But I, I put this at the front of the book because when I got people saying, whose side is she on? Right. I thought, okay, look, you're not either for or against masculinity. You can be for the good parts and you can think critically, you know, about negative scripts for masculinity. So this survey really pulled it together. So this sociologist speaks all around the world. So again, this is global. And he asked, he came up with a very clever experiment where he asked young men two questions. First, he asked them, what does it mean to be a good man? You know, if you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man, what does that mean? All around the world, young men had no trouble answering that. They would say honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, look out for the little guy, uh, be a protector, uh, be a provider, be responsible. And he, the sociologists would say, where'd you learn that? And they say, I don't know, it's just in the air we breathe. Mm-hmm. Or if they were in a Western country, they would often say it's part of a Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm-hmm. And then he would follow up with the second question where he'd say, well, what does it mean then if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, oh, no, that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, play through pain, um, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. Sure. <laughs> In other words, uh, this sociologist concludes that men around the world, again, again, do you see how once again he found that they have an inherent, innate, universal sense of what it means to be the good man. And we would all agree with them. I mean, that's basically the biblical view of, of manhood is what men all around the globe call the good man. But they also feel the cultural pressure to live up the, the, the quote unquote real man. Mm-hmm. Which includes traits we might consider more toxic, at least if, you know, if decoupled from a moral ideal. 
it can slide into entitlement, control, dominance, and so on. And so I put this at the front of the book. In fact, I used, I used it as a kind of a connecting thread throughout the book on, you know, how can we support men's innate inherent knowledge of the good man? You know, Romans 2, right? We all have a conscience. Mm-hmm. How can we support men in that while also asking, where did the real man script come from? You know, where did the Andrew Tate script come from? You know, and looking at the secularization of American society and how that led to a much more negative uh, view. And what we now call toxic is really the, the secular de- definition of masculinity. You kind of read my mind because I, I wanted to go, I guess, off, off script a little bit. And so, so now as you've become so informed about this history of the position of masculinity in American or Western society and the, the good man versus the real man. And so now you've, you've been sort of <laughs> initiated into this, into this larger world. And as you look across Twitter and look around the public dialogue around masculinity, what do you think about the Andrew Tates or the Jordan Petersons or the Jocko Willings or, or, those, or those guys versus what sort of needs to happen in a Christian context? Yeah, so I wouldn't. I don't know that I would uh, put all of them together because right, I, exactly. I think Jordan Peterson is quite different from Andrew Tate. I, I really do think Andrew Tate is sort of the fast cars, fast money, fast girls. You know, runs runs OnlyFans. You you know, he has girls yeah. working for OnlyFans, um, and, and if, you know, he, several of his um, videos have now come up where he calls women stupid and lazy, and you know, they think I love them. Of course, I don't. I'm just using them to get rich. Sure. You know, I mean, his own words, he, he says things like that. So, um, well, here's, and, and so, so some of them, like, like uh, Peterson, Jordan Peterson, I think is basically doing a good job. Mm. Um, but where did the negative one come from? Well, you know what? Through my book, I take readers through several stages. And so let me focus on just one of them because I think it's much, much more influential than most of us realize. And that was the, Dar- the rise of Darwinian evolution. Mm-hmm. You know, most of us think evolution is a debate over fossils and genes, but we don't know that it had a a huge impact on concepts of masculinity because Darwinian thinkers began to say that in the struggle for survival, the men who came out on top were ruthless, rugged, uh, barbaric, uh, savage, and even sexually predatory. And so they argued that to get in touch with your true masculinity meant getting in touch with your animal nature. Instead of urging men to live up to the image of God in them, they said you find your authentic nature by living down to the beast within, hmm. you know, tapping into the biological instincts for lust and power. And, and of course, Darwin also did explicitly say that women are intellectually inferior to men. So he bears some responsibility for that part of toxic masculinity as well. Mm. Um, and and that, so that was called social Darwinism, but it has come back in our own day under a new label. It's called evolutionary psychology, but it's the same idea. You know, that if our bodies evolve, so did our minds and feelings, and everything's a product of natural selection. And so I give a couple of examples in the book. Um, one was a best-selling book, so very influential, best-selling. Um, called The Moral Animal, and the the author says, this is a direct quote, the human male is a possessive, flesh-obsessed pig. Oh, I think he got oppressive in there, too. (laughs) (laughs) Possessive, oppressive, flesh-obsessed pig. Giving a man a book on how to have a better marriage is like giving a Viking a book on how not to pillage. 
<laughs> and the other example I gave is uh, George Gilder, who just came out. Uh, well, he has an older book that's just been reissued. Yes. Um, and and he too, he too says that the uh, a, a man is by nature, by nature, violent, sexually predatory, irresponsible, and especially if if he's single, if if he doesn't have a woman to tame him, <laughs> uh, he will especially be violent and irresponsible, et cetera, et cetera. Um, his greatest longing is is the motorbike and the open road. You know, he's in other words, he's not naturally oriented towards marriage and family. You know, his natural instinct is to get away and be wild and free and so on. Um, and and uh, he and I have actually ended up talking on Twitter recently. Oh, and <laughs> um, and I said, well, my view is that uh, he, he's so used to being attacked by feminists, right? I said, well, actually, my my critique is not from a feminist position, but actually more from a, a masculinist position, <laughs> because I think you demean your argument demeans men. I mean, to say that men are by nature, you know, not oriented towards family and marriage and so on, um, but are naturally irresponsible and violent. Uh, I think there's a very low view of of men. I don't know why men put up. I didn't say this, but I don't know why men put up with this book. Because it's saying, he literally says, a civilization depends on a woman's morality. It's a woman's morality that makes or breaks a civilization. And that men need to take their morality from women. To which I say, what red-blooded man is going to take his moral morality from what is called a woman's morality? No, men have to take their morality from God. You know, God tells men what it means to be a man. It's not like, well, you know, men is not naturally oriented toward marriage, and so women have to sort of force them into it. The Bible never says women need to entice men into marriage or need to demand it. That was another word he used. He said, uh, women are whatever, men are whatever women demand of them. The Bible doesn't say I am supposed to demand it of my husband. My husband's supposed to be the leader. He's supposed to be the initiator. In Genesis 1, it's the man who's called to leave his childhood home and his parents and you know, stake out a new home with his wife. Um, it's a man who's supposed to initiate. Yep. Um, it's not up to her to hold him, and the, the the idea that somehow it's up to her to to you know hold his, keep him faithful. And at, at any rate, so yes, we've actually been discussing it a bit on Twitter. Somebody else pulled him into a into the discussion. I didn't. Someone else <laughs> pulled him in, and he was kind enough to start responding. So we'll see. He said, I'm reading a book and I like it. So we'll see. <laughs> well, the, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, so, so we'll, no, so it's an on, like, like the other debates we've talked about, it's still ongoing. Well, the, I mean, the question of, of men getting the morality from women is actually one that you address very openly in the book that men used to be the holders of morality until it became women. And I, there's actually a book that I'd read about that very issue, but that said women have always been the holders of morality. It's called like the hand that rocks the world, something like that. But please talk about that transition. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, well, there's one called The Natural Superiority of Women. but that So that's not the same book, is it? Mm. Uh, it's by an anthropologist named Ashley Montague. And I think maybe George Gilder takes his sociology from him. But at any rate, so here, now here's the truth. <laughs> um, prior to the 19th century, uh, it had always been thought that men were the ones who were morally stronger, morally mm -hmm. superior. All the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. It was thought that the insight into right and wrong was a rational insight, and they thought men were more rational. 
And therefore, they concluded that men were more virtuous. Mm-hmm. In fact, the word virtue, the Latin root means man, V-I-R means man, yeah. as in the word viral. Mm-hmm. So it was all the way up until the 19th century when suddenly there was a turnaround. That's when women first were said to be morally superior to men. And how did that happen? Well, it was part of the secularization process. After the Industrial Revolution, a large public realm developed, right, of factories and businesses and financial institutions and universities and the state. And people began to argue that these large public institutions should operate by scientific principle, by which they meant value-free. Mm-hmm. In other words, don't bring your private values into the public realm, which is what we hear today still, right? That's when it started. And since men were the ones getting that secular education and working in that secular realm, they began to be secular in their outlook before women did. Um, and you see it in the literature of the day. People began to protest that men were not attending churches often. They were not governing their behavior by biblical ethic. And, but meanwhile, where did values go, right? If they're kicked out of the public realm, they're in the, val- they're in the private realm mm-hmm. where s- women still presided. And so that's when people started saying, oh, well, women are just more moral anyway. They're more spiritually sensitive. And it's women's job to be the moral guardians of society. And that's sort of a double standard where it was just expected that men are just more prone to sin and vice and that it's up to women to hold them in check. Mm -hmm. That double standard started then. And and as far as I can tell, it, it probably is still happening. I was interviewed by on one of these podcasts by a young Christian couple. Hmm. And so I thought, man, I'm going to turn it back on them. I asked them questions. (laughs) And I said, what do you think? Is that double standard still among young Christians? They said, absolutely. You know, they they were newlyweds. So, you know, during the (laughs) dating phase, during the dating phase, you know, they just come out of, they said, definitely. It's just, it's expected that men are more um, prone to sexual sin, pornography. And even after marriage, men are more... Uh, prone to adultery and um and that it's up to the woman you know to hold them in check draw the line uh you know to be the moral exemplar and so on so i think that that double standard is probably still part of our christian culture today and it was the me too movement right i mean it's part of the secular culture too to some degree still the me too movement was women saying guys you know you need to shape up what you're doing is wrong <laughs> so yeah i think we see that double standard and but uh, to your initial question, it has not always been that way. For the first time in the 19th century, so it was very new. That was one of the key takeaways because because the book that I had read, it's called "The Hand That Rocks the World." Uh, I don't remember the name of the author right now, but he had said that the he was operating from an Evo Psych kind of background too. Though he had said that the that the power balance was that men were given the power of physical strength and women were given the power of moral strength, and that was how. The power balance was established between the sexes, and so and so I, I, that had been a really interesting formative idea for me when I read it. I had unchall- I had not challenged it, and your book forced me to challenge it because, like, oh, this makes a lot more sense from a Christian morality standpoint that men were the holders of morality, and with the secularization of society, it was outsourced to women in the home. Outsourced. That's a good way of putting it. Right. Right. And and I agree with you. You know, I think that um, again, part going back to why we need to have a higher standard for men is that uh, the the biblical standard for men does ask them to be leaders in the home. By the way, one of the, one part of the book that we haven't talked about is the first two chapters where I yeah. do the sociological studies. 
but uh, the, one of the chapters is just surveys of Christian couples, <laughs> um, husbands and wives, because again, my, my goal is kind of an apologetics purpose, which is you know, the, the secular world attacks Christian couples and says, you know, any, any notion of male headship in the home is going to turn men into these overbearing, oppressive, tyrannical patriarchs. <laughs> and so I wanted to see, well, does it? You know, I didn't want to talk to the theologians because, you know, they give you what they think should happen. Right. I wanted to know what is actually happening, what is actually happening in the Christian homes. And so I looked at all these surveys and, and I have to tell you, Will, I was blown away. Mm-hmm. I did not expect the couples who were surveyed to have such warm, loving, mutual, respectful understanding of headship in the home. I, I, I just really yeah. did not expect that. And when they were asked, well, what do you think headship means? They didn't, most of the time, they didn't answer things like, well, the breadwinner, the final authority, the tiebreaker. They said spiritual leader. That was by far the most common answer. And then they were asked, well, what does that mean? And they, of course, they started with the practical things like get your family to church, get your kids to youth group, have family devotions, have, have family prayer. Um, but a lot of them went further and, and talked about the more intangible aspect of that, of just feeling responsible for your children's spiritual growth and being responsible for your wife's spiritual welfare. You know, that, that um, you're the one who should be taking the initiative. Um, authority technically means, you know, the one who authors. It comes from the word author, which is the person who authors, you know, a, a, an activity. The one who goes first, the initiator. So I, I, I was fascinated to see that the, the social science data does show that Christian husbands are living out a very warm and they, they, they believed in male headship, the most of them, you know, um, they, they had statistics. But at the, t- at the time, at least I remember one statistic from one study said like 90%, 90% of evangelical couples did believe in male headship. Which was higher than I thought, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought egalitarianism would have be- had made bigger inroads. Um, but at any rate, they do believe in male headship, and then they defined it well. You know, when they were asked, when they were asked, they quoted Ephesians five. Mm-hmm. Ephesians five: Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And this too was surprising because later, when I got to the chapters on abuse, I found people who said, "My pastor never." Gave a sermon on that part of Ephesians, yeah. you know, the part that addresses husbands. One woman literally said, "I didn't even believe it was in the Bible. I had to go look it up myself." Mm. <laughs> so that was fascinating. Oh, and one man who was abusive, um, a, a Christian counselor reports on this. He's a, a Christian counselor who counsels men in court ordered counseling because abusive men don't usually get counseling unless it's court ordered. Yeah. And <laughs> but this Christian therapist said, you know, I had an abusive husband who kept quoting Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands. And then he said, well, do you know what the rest of that verse is? And he took him to, you know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he said, this abusive man was shocked. He had never heard that. Mm. So it really means something that the husbands, the, the husbands and wives who are actually doing a good job, quote Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives, you know, more than any other verse, that's the verse they quote. Hi, everyone. I'm having fun doing these Will Reforms' coffee episodes, so I thought I'd do another one. 
I want to take a moment to talk with you about Reformation Coffee's four key promises. First, they say, we will serve God and glorify His name with our business. How many companies do you currently support that say that? I know we're all enamored of the post-millennial vision, but if that vision doesn't touch ground in your spending habits, what difference does it make? Yay, post-millennialism, we say on our way to Starbucks, Target, and Whole Foods. I'm sorry, no. Postmill is what Postmill does, and Postmill gotta start investing some money into Christendom. Now I'm saying, second, Reformation Coffee says, we will strive to serve you the highest quality, freshly roasted coffee. Did you catch that? Freshly roasted coffee. Reformation does not white label beans roasted by someone else. You can probably buy Starbucks beans by the ton, throw them in a fancy design bag, and put a reformed Christian looking sticker on them, and none will be the wiser. Meanwhile, it's just something from an unknown brand name, and your dollars dump right back into the beast. Brandon does nothing like that. You order, he roasts, he ships, you grind, you drink. And a pastor, his family, and his community are supported. Take a moment to think about that. It's easy to take coffee for granted because it's everywhere, which is why I say this one small change can make a huge difference in a key part of your life. High quality, freshly roasted, Christendom building coffee. I hope the picture is coming into focus. Third, they say, we will roast your coffee within three days of your order. That means you don't have to wait for your coffee to be produced. You order on Monday, they roast by Thursday. You're not waiting around two or even three weeks for some guy to get around to roasting your coffee. This isn't a side hustle. This isn't a hobby. Brandon pastors a church, works a job, is married to his lovely wife, Cassie, and has two kids, one of whom is getting married soon, and somewhere in that, he roasts you coffee on demand. A promise like that can only be made by a man who's passionate about what he does. Because again, other Christian coffee companies could white label beans and feed some share of their profits into the mouth of worldliness. Brandon says no to that and puts his time, energy, heart, and effort on the line to do better. Men, I really hope you're getting the picture here. If not, pause this recording and think about it. Because the fourth promise Reformation Coffee makes is this. We will ship your coffee within four days of your order. Your fresh roasted coffee is shipped right away. It doesn't sit on the shelf waiting for the fulfillment guy to get around to it after he's done with his other job. For Brandon, this is a family affair. He roasts, the family ships, tracks, accounts, and fulfills. They all work together to do one thing, deliver you an incredible cup of coffee. So when you order Reformation coffee, that's what you're buying into. That's what you're a part of. A lot of men talk about doing the thing. Brandon is doing the thing. In fact, he's probably doing it right now as he's listening to this. Cassie might be right there with him. Which is why, week after week, I'm telling you to peel a few dollars off your monthly coffee budget to support a man and his family giving their all to build into Christendom. No LARPing, just a labor of love, one with a generational impact that you can taste. So, I hope I've convinced you, not just why you should be drinking Reformation coffee, because it's delicious, but why you should be supporting them which you can do by going to reformationcoffee.com right now and ordering some beans. Choose from Ethiopia, India, Guatemala, or Brazil roasts. Buy 12-ounce bags or samplers. You can also subscribe to have your coffee delivered automatically and use the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag on the house. And remember, when you do, you'll be purchasing God-glorifying coffee, fresh roasted on demand within three days and shipped right away. Find me another coffee company that promises the same, and I'll buy you a bag of Reformation coffee on me. But here's the thing, you can't. And that, I thought, 
was something worth celebrating. Happy sipping, friends. That was one of the striking things about the book. It was the opening chapters where you talk about the differences in marital satisfaction between what we call nominal Christians, secular individuals, and in, in faithful practicing evangelical Christians. The difference in marital satisfaction, as well as uh, as well as the abuse question, was so like practicing practicing faithful Christians were scored higher on every metric of marital satisfaction, including sexual satisfaction, as I recall. And when I was reading that, I, I was talking to my friend Nate, and we were both going through the book at the same time. And it was like both of us were like, "Bro, you got to read this." So it was, it was stunning that you found that research. Yes, and I, um, it, I put, again, I put it at the front because I wanted the good news first. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to encourage people with the good news first. And, um, and it also really is the final reason I decided to write the book. That was sort of the final nudge is I've got to get this information out there. Mm -hmm. Because to find these studies, I had to go digging in the academic literature. You know, it's not out in the public yet. So, yes, what happened is this. As, as we both mentioned um, in the secular media, the the notion is the the narrative is that evangelical men are you know exhibit A of right. toxic masculinity. It was easy for me to find lots of quotes, but I'll give you just one. So the the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. uh, said this. She said, "The theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today." So the social scientists were looking at this and saying, well, where's your evidence? Mm -hmm. you know, you're making these charges. Where's your data? So they went out and did the studies. And I quote some dozen or so studies. And they did find, in fact, like you say, that Christian men who actively attend church, you know, who are really committed to it, test out the highest in terms of uh, being loving fathers and engaged husbands. And by the way, one of the first first pushbacks I get is, well, of course, their wives said they were happy, their husband's sitting right there. <laughs> but that's not the case. Most of these are drawing, some of them are small studies. Most of them, however, are drawing on large public objective databases. The largest one is called the General Social Survey done by the University of Chicago. And it's, it's data that's mined <laughs> by policymakers, journalists, social scientists, and so on. So yes, the women are actually uh, ask their questions separately. And so what they're, it's, what they're saying is that the women report, the wives report the highest level of happiness with their husband's love and affection. Evangelical fathers spend significantly more time with their children, both in shared activities like sports and church youth groups, and in uh, discipline, like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples divorce at the lowest rate of any group in America. 35% lower than secular couples. And then the real surprise um, is that they have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. In fact, let me give you a quote. Sometimes a quote Please. just really clinches it. And um, so I mentioned Brad Wilcox earlier, that he was one of my uh, top researchers. And to give you a sense of his stature, he, he writes in places like the New York Times. So this is a quote from a New York Times article that he published. He said, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. By the way, they focus often on the wives because, of course, the notion is that these uh, marriages are abusive to the wives. Mm -hmm. But the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. 
fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high-quality marriages. And then he turns to, let me get another, another quote for you, he turns to his fellow academicians, you know, uh, sociology is a highly secularized field, and he says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So the bottom line here is that the social science data is very clear that Christian men are doing very well. And this isn't, you know, a pep talk from a religious leader. Mm-mm. You know, this is solid empirical research. We have evidence-based findings that we could bring both into the church to help, you know, encourage men. And then, you know, it's great apologetics, too, because we should bring this into the public square, too, in order to debunk the secular narrative. I, I, I really appreciated knowing all that because it validated for me what I see around me and the evangelical Christian men that I know. Yes, I, I'm glad. You know, I, the trouble is that churches aren't necessarily saying that. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> I have, I have a, um, a graduate student who uh, is the leader of the women's ministry at a very large Baptist church here in Houston. And she said, on Mother's Day, we yeah. hand out roses and tell the women that they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. Yeah. And I thought that was a great summary of how churches are often treating men. And I think one thing I would like is that they, this information gets into the churches to support the men who are doing a good job because they, they, they also feel defeated and beaten down by the negative messages on masculinity. You know, um, there was a, a, a psychotherapist who writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal. And she said, uh, young men are coming into my practice now feeling demoralized, yeah. defeated, beaten down, because they feel like they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. And of course, that's affecting Christian men as well, especially since they're often considered the worst, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the most toxic. So we need to counter that message just to support, you know, men in the Christian world who are doing a good job and, you know, do better. And you know, most people do better when they're, when they feel like they're succeeding, right? They don't do better when you come down on them with criticism. So it's time to start telling Christian men they're doing a good job so that they will be motivated to, to carry on. No, I think that's so important because you can motivate people with the carrot or the stick, right? And I think that there's a lot of stick motivating happening. But when you paint a picture of a warm and loving family, honoring and respect and leadership, that calls to the highest nature of a man, that the, the part of man that's made in God's image. Yes, and I, I come back frequently to the um, cultural mandate as well. I don't yeah. think that churches are doing enough with the cultural mandate. Um, my, half my students have not heard that term. So <laughs> the cultural mandate is from Genesis, where God, uh, God has created the universe, the plants, the animals, and then he creates the first human couple. What is the first thing he says to them? He tells them what their purpose is, you know, yeah. what their job description is as humans. He says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Yeah. And in the highly streamlined language of Genesis 1, yeah, be fruitful and multiply. It's not just have kids, but it's also 
all the social institutions historically grew out of the family. The the extended family becomes a a tribe, becomes a clan, a a village, a nation. Uh, Individual social institutions form for specific purposes. You know, you need a state, you need a marketplace, you need a school, you need a church. So it, it actually means, you know, unpack and build up all the social institutions. Subdue the earth means not just farming, because, you know, that's where most cultures start, but also mining and technology and uh, in, inventing computers, <laughs> composing music. I had a, a student who was a bit skeptical and said, what do you mean composing music? I, I play the violin. And so I said, what's the violin made out of? <laughs> Wood. <laughs> what's the bow made out of? <laughs> Horsehair. It's all the transcendent beauty we associate with music starts with harnessing the natural resources that God has given us. So what I do is then I, I say this is, you know, this especially is for men because what it says to them is, what is your calling? What is your original purpose? This is pre-fall, right? Mm-hmm. So this is before the fall. This is God's ideal for the human race is, um, you know, it's, it's not getting out on the open road in your motorbike or, you know, it's not the sort of get away from get away from civilization to find your true self, like the Andrew Tate. You know, get, why be married? I actually saw this on Twitter yesterday. It said a high value male is one who's single. You know, no kids, builds himself up physically, gets rich. I mean, it was, it was Andrew Tate. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't him, but it was all it was his message. No, no, no. The Bible says you find your true fulfillment rolling up your sleeves and getting deeply engaged in your family in the social world and in productive and creative work. That's what you were created for. And that's what will make you most fulfilled. As you started discovering many of these things and started advocating uh, for for men on behalf of the, the better natures of men made in God's image, did you find that some of the, that you were able to change the minds of some people around you? Um, because this, you're kind of tacking a little bit away from from what I've heard described as the sisterhood in some ways, but or maybe you had already established that you were that you were into these topics. That's, that, that's a tricky question because it's the book is so new. Mm. You know, it, it came out at the end of June, so it's still so new that you know, judging by responses on Twitter <laughs> and reviews that have come out, most people are still at the stage of, "Wow, I didn't know this." <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This has a lot of material I I never knew. I never knew about these sociological studies. I didn't know this history, um, and the. I have been on a lot of podcasts that are sort of men's groups. They they do seem to appreciate it the, because it is, you know, male affirming. It is male yeah. affirming. Um, I, I was on a podcast with a Christian psychologist, and he said, I read your opening story about your father. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> it's, an, a, a, <laughs> it's going to be a, an abused woman who's angry at men. And then he said, actually, it's not. Yeah. It's very supportive of men. It's very positive. And then he says, um, well, at least we know you're not writing from an ivory tower. You know, you're writing from the trenches. And he said it gives it does give your writing more credibility. And and, and that is why I put the story there, right? Because I wanted people to know this has been a long, hard haul for me. I didn't have a privileged, happy background. You know, I didn't. I, I wasn't respected and loved when I was growing up. And so this, uh, as I put it in the introduction, in a sense, I've been writing this book my whole life. Mm-hmm. Right? I've I've been working toward a positive biblical, healthy view of masculinity my whole life. And, and so most people so far um, 
have, like I said, I have said, you know, th- there's so much that's new here that this is very interesting. That was one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you after reading the book is that the, the strong personal angle, that it was clear that it was your own redemptive story in a way. Yes. And I even tell, I, I tell the, how I came to uh, psychological, emotional, and spiritual healing. Mm. So I became a Christian at Labrie, which is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. Yeah. And I tell that story in other books, right? I tell, talk about my intellectual search, how I gave up my faith in high school, and you know how I embraced all kinds of secular isms and ended up at Labrie. Uh, uh, we had lived in Europe when I was a child, and so I'd gone back. And that's how I sort of stumbled across Labrie. And, and of course, what drew me in at first was the apologetic. I had never met Christians who could engage with the secular philosophies that I had absorbed by that time, uh, who could, and who could show that Christianity had solid, logical, reasonable answers. I, I was blown away. I just I had no idea there was such a thing as Christian apologetics. Um, so that was the first thing, and that's the story I usually tell. But in this book, I tell a different side of the story, and that is that um, at Labrie, on staff, was also a psychiatric social worker. Her name was Sheila Bird, and we called her Birdie. Hmm. And she's the one who helped me to realize that I had to work through my child, the trauma of my childhood. When I left home, I tried to leave my childhood behind. I tried to make a blank slate. It was so painful that I thought I could just escape from it, you know, just leave it behind, recreate my whole self from scratch. <laughs> that was my goal. And she helped me, Birdie helped me to realize, no, this, that, that doesn't, you know, Human nature doesn't work that way. You actually have to work through the trauma and you actually have to, you know, bring God's love to bear, you, you know, and, and ultimately that's what heals. It's working your way through to a deep, profound, personal experience of God's love. Love heals. It's hard to put this into words and explain why it works, yeah. <laughs> but love does that. You know, I'm sure we know that even on a human level, you know, if somebody loves you, how healing that is. So if you have a profound experience of God's love, that is what ultimately heals. And that's why I can write this book. You know, and I, I literally had people asking me things like, why aren't you bitter? <laughs> well, God's love is just totally taking care of all that. I mean, not that it was easy. Remember, I went to Labrie when I was 19. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, this has been a lifelong uh, struggle, but, 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 but real, should I say. But the healing is real. The, the healing that is possible from childhood trauma is real. Thank you for saying that. That is a, such a big part of, of the women's side of the great reconciliation. For men, there's that we have our own tasks, including healing from our own, from our own uh, challenges and wounds, but there's a big challenge that faces women as well to heal from theirs, to step into reconciliation with men who have their arms open, but sometimes it can be difficult to see us through the pain of the past, and that pain needs to be worked through so you can see the men in many ways who are right in front of you. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point because you don't leave your past behind. You know, this this yeah. is what I learned from Bertie. You you think you're making a blank slate and starting over, but no, you take it with you all the time. And so, if you don't work through it, it will destroy you know your future relationships. You know that that emotional baggage you carry with you until and unless you actually work it through and get emotional healing. And a lot of people don't do that until they face a disaster, right? Some kind of crisis. Um, I was lucky because right from the start of my Christian life, I had the intellectual side 
and the emotional healing. You know, I had it right from the beginning. I had a very balanced understanding of Christianity. And I, looking back, I realized what a gift that was. Can you recommend any resources for those who don't have access to their, personal, their own personal birdie? Um, well one of the things that i found really encouraging um uh, because well actually we skipped an important point Mm. we talked about how good christian men you know how how how, uh, committed christian men test out the best we didn't talk about the nominal christian men oh sure and that's relevant to this question right of, of abuse in the christian home because um you know, the, the pushback I always get is, haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of society? And so, in fact, in my research, I found this one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. So the researchers went back to the data, and they made that all-important distinction between men who attend church regularly and are committed versus nominal Christians. So these are men who might, in a survey like this, check the Baptist box. Mm-hmm for example, but who actually don't ach- attend church. You know, it's mostly a cultural family background. And these men test out dramatically differently. They fit all the toxic stereotypes, mm. um, sadly. They, their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They spend the least amount of time with their kids. They have the highest rate of divorce, 20% higher than secular men. And they have the highest rate of domestic violence, higher than secular men. So this is the real shock. Yeah. And it, what it means is that if, if you were to do a study just on evangelicals, no wonder that the numbers are going to be misleading because you get some men who are better than secular men and other men who are worse than secular men. And that's why we never quite got clarity on this subject until, until recently. And, and of course, and because of that, of course, I had to have a couple of chapters on abuse. Um, otherwise, it would look like I was ignoring these, these, hmm. these men who are out there claiming an evangelical identity, right? Um, but when I did the, uh, the, when I wrote those two chapters, one of the things that was very encouraging is this. In the past, when there's been any, any sort of abuse, books and uh, Christian leaders have generally made the wife responsible. They've said, if you would just love him more, if you would just forgive him more, if you would just cook his favorite meals, if you would have sex more often, if you would, if you would, if you would lose weight and look better, you know, as one abused woman put it, to me this way, her, her pastor said, if you would just do all those things, he will blossom into the man you want him to be. Well, actually, human nature doesn't work that way. Mm. <laughs> Most of the time, if somebody's really at the point where they're willing to hurt other people to get what they want, they've reached the point where they will not be changed by just you being nice to them. We know this in terms of the bully on the playground, right? If you placate or acquiesce to them, they get worse. Or in international affairs, if there's a belligerent nation, you know, if you placate them, they get even more belligerent. So it's just human nature. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Matthew 18. Jesus says, if somebody's re- willing to sin against you, your job is to hold them accountable. And yeah. if they don't listen to you, bring a few more witnesses. If they don't listen to them, bring it to the church. If they don't listen to the church, you know, maybe there's a time for church discipline. So it's I am glad to see, I wrote this book at the right time, because Mm -hmm. there are finally Christian therapists and Christian theologians who are telling the Christian world, you you don't blame the victim, you address the sinner. If there's true abuse, 
And it is usually the man um, when it's truly abusive, you know, when it's, it's violent. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is the man. I mean, and it's not surprising. He's bigger and stronger. Um, the, the goal should be to hold the man accountable. Not to tell it's up, not to say it's up to the wife to sort of, you know, seduce him back into a, a positive relationship. It doesn't work. It's not human nature. It's to hold the man accountable for his sin. And so, um, what I would say when you say, uh, "What about resources?" Read the books in the end notes. <laughs> there are some really good books out now for Christians who are trapped in some kind of abuse. Um, and and I, I got a lot out of secular writers as well. So uh, just a, a quick, um, the best writer on abuse in Christian homes is a, is a therapist named, uh, a counselor, I guess, named Leslie Vernick, V-E-R-N-I-C-K. Mm-hmm. She's the best one. Start with her. Um, and I've also gotten a lot out of secular writers, too. So look at all of the people I quote, because I have some wonderful secular writers, and then I have some excellent Christian writers as well. David E. Clark is a Christian psychologist who's been on focused on the family. He's, he's written some very good books. Um, but re- read the end notes. I, I think you will find the end notes are very rich with lots and lots of resources. I agree. I agree. Yeah, that was, uh, there's plenty to, plenty to go through in there. Um, do you, do you have time for just one more question? I know we've, we've, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Sure. So, um, so one of the sections of the book that impacted uh, me the most and that I plan to cite extensively was the section where you talked about how uh, the way that Christ related to women was so radical for its time for Greeks mm. and for Jews, because there is a whole, there's a whole contingent of men online who really take the, the they, they flip feminism around and they become chauvinism, right? They do their end of it where, where they start. So can you go through some of those examples? Because I, I bookmarked that page and I was really looking forward to asking you about it. It's very powerful examples. Yes, except I probably wouldn't say Greek. I'd say Roman. Right? Roman, the, sorry. Yes. Yeah. That the early church was born into ancient Rome. In ancient Roman culture, where, um, first of all, uh, Women had very low value. I mean, women were for having legal heirs. Wives were wives were for having legal heirs, but men could have sex with just about anyone else they wanted to, and it was socially acceptable. You know, with prostitutes and mistresses and courtesans, and and their slaves. The majority of adultery happened with slaves because the slaves are right in your household, and slaves, men and women, because there was a lot of homosexuality. Adults and children. Children were fair game too. We have lots of records of, of boys, um, slave boys, being raped. Um, so the, the culture at that time, what what Christianity asked of women morally was not all that different. What it asked of men morally was dramatic, was revolutionary. In fact, you find church fathers like Augustine, fourth century, was still giving sermons. To Christian men on why it was not permissible to have sex with their slaves. These, these practices were hard to eradicate. And so he writes and he, he, says, to a, he says to the wife, you know, I, I understand how this hurts you. I know that, you know, that this, this is not good. Your husband is sinning against you. And then he turns to the husband and said, cut it out. You know, you're, you're sinning. Um, but women flocked to the early church. The church has always had, the Christian church has always had more women than men. And 
but it was right from the beginning because already in the early church, women had far more dignity, far more status, and far more standing in the eyes of their husbands because suddenly the man was supposed to take all his erotic energy that had been dissipated, you know, many, many different directions, and he was supposed to focus them strictly on his wife. And suddenly his wife was not having to compete with all these other people. But one of the worst, one, one of the most troubling quotes is, is actually in my earlier book, Love Thy Body. But it was, um, I, I read a book in which a, it quotes a Roman writer chastising a wife because she was jealous of her husband. And he says, you can't be jealous of your husband when he has sex with a slave boy. <laughs> because everybody knows sex with boys is more pleasurable. <laughs> So that's what women were up against wow. at the time. You know, I know. I mean, we 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 need to recognize how different Christianity. We take Christianity for granted, right? Yeah. It's become, in many ways, it's the wallpaper of Western culture. So mm. things like this help us to pull out what was unique about Christianity. And another another example I like to give is um, we we read the Bible sometimes through these kind of rose colored glasses, and you know, we're kind of sentimental. Um, one of them being when Jesus blessed the children. And it just sounds like such a Sunday school moment. And we have these, you know, Victorian <laughs> paintings that are kind of soft focus and, um, and pastel colors. But that was actually quite radical as well, because children had very little value. In Roman culture, they were considered non-persons. Mm -hmm. um, abortion and infanticide were both very common, which is another sign of a low view of children. And a low view of women because abortion killed a lot of them. <laughs> mm. And um, by the way, another reason that's low view of women because the majority of the children killed both through abortion and infanticide were girls. Yeah. It was very rare for a Roman family to have more than one token daughter. They, they kill the rest. Um, so the, setting the scene for the view of children, it was very common for them to be beaten. That was not considered abnormal. You know, they were Romans treated children as you know well they just weren't rational. Remember the Romans and the Greeks, you know they they were the civilization that prized reason, and so children were not rational, and therefore they were not even fully persons. And they they were weak and irrational, and um. So when Jesus says, you know, let the children come to me, well, first of all, you can kind of understand why the, his disciples said, get rid of these kids, mm -hmm. you know, because they're infected with that same mentality. Um, and Jesus says, no, bring the kids to me. This was revolutionary as well. There's a whole book on this, by the way. Um, the, the, uh, I, I think the title is When, when Children Became People, something like that. Hmm. And it's all about how Christianity revolu revolutionized our view of children. And nowadays we see children as these precious little creatures that are you know, worthy of protection and cherishing. That was the product of Christianity. And so Jesus saying, let the children come to me. And Jesus saying things like, if you don't accept the, um, if, if you don't come into the kingdom as a child, you know, you, you don't come into the kingdom. You should <laughs> read the church fathers who said, what in the world did he mean by that? <laughs> wow. It was almost humorous, them saying, you know, nobody had ever set children up as an exemplar for adults. No one had done that. So again, that's another example where we just, don't recognize how revolutionary Jesus' own treatment was, his own. And of women, of course, um, the fact that he traveled with women, the fact that he taught women, he taught mixed audiences, mixed audiences mm. <laughs> of men and women. And of course, uh, the 
the key one of being Mary, Mary who sat at his feet, sitting at his feet was was a uh, um, metaphor then for being a disciple. So when he says, "Hey, leave Mary alone," she, you know she's being a disciple, and that's good. Um, and uh, when and even things like respecting women, touching women, talking to women in public. You remember probably that in 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 a Jewish culture, women were not supposed to be spoken to in public, yeah. except by a relative. <laughs> yeah. But he spoke to women in public. Uh, he he gave women some of his greatest theological insights, like "I am the resurrection and the life." He gives that one to Ma- to Martha, who he had earlier scolded. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, "Whoa, that's amazing!" <laughs> um, he had scolded her for being too concerned with women's work. Notice. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gives her this really deep spiritual insight. So all that to say, yeah, Jesus' own treatment of women was was extraordinary, and it was fun going through several of those examples in in one of my chapters. Well, I hope everyone listening can hear in, in those examples just how much healing is available within Christianity for men and women, and just how much it does reconcile the sexes, like you say. Yes, I was so glad when I saw that your principle number three had the same word, reconcile. Yes. Reconciling the sexes. Yes. Well, thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for, uh, for the time you spent with me today. And, and I really appreciate all the insights and, into your book and into your work. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I've, it's really fun talking with someone who clearly has been thinking along many of the same lines. I, I appreciate your work as well. Thank you. Yes. Uh, we, we, some of the same principles underline everything I do. So again, I was really excited to read your book. And so where would you like to send people to find out more about you and what you do? Oh, yeah, good. So uh, of course, you can buy the book on Amazon, like you can buy anything there, uh, <laughs> or christianbook.com if you prefer. Mm-hmm. And I do have a website. My publisher very generously um, redesigned my website, so it's fun and colorful. <laughs> and you can you can come and uh, browse all my other books. And you can even leave a a message. You can say hello. I don't get a chance to answer them all, but I read them all. So come come on by. Oh, and I forgot to say the the address: nancypiercy.com. And Piercy is P E A R C E Y. Nancypiercy.com. So come on over and say hello. Excellent. I, and I hope uh, this book provides an introduction to your other body of work, which perhaps someday we'll get a chance to talk about that as well. That would be fun. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.